0: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found
1: in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for episode 5. Again, we just want to thank everyone for all the listens, likes, and loves that we've been receiving for the past three weeks. We appreciate it so much. And we just want to remind everyone that we have our website up and ready to go. That's truecrimecouple.com, where we can discuss all the episodes that we have and possible theories that we have or that you have or any comments that you want to leave us on the episodes and if you're feeling super generous what you can do is head on over to our patreon page which is patreon.com slash true crime couple we do want to recognize some people supporting us already we want to thank kathy rodnight steve myerson and justin tinkham okay so let's cheers to that our first three patreon supporters we appreciate you guys Oh my God, we love you guys so much <laughs> so on tonight's episode we're going to be discussing the oakland county child killer and the unsolved homicides of four young children during the 13-month period of 1976 and 1977. oakland county michigan a suburban area just northeast of detroit has always been regarded as one of the richest counties in the country. Its location is juxtapositioned by the bitter class and race struggle of Detroit in the 1970s. Oakland County, on the other side of 8 Mile Road, which separates the ghettos from the city from the tree-lined streets of the suburbs, shielded the young children of Oakland County. The parents here would not think twice about allowing their children to walk home or play in the neighborhood playgrounds without supervision in fact one resident recalls in the summer or on the weekends we would leave the house just after breakfast and not come home until our mothers called us in or the streetlights went on all of this would change in 1976 when the oakland county area was paralyzed by the workings of a child serial killer the oakland county child killer also known as the babysitter killer operated over a period of 13 months in 1976-1977. During this time, four children, two boys and two girls, between the ages of 10 and 12, were abducted and murdered. It was discovered that the boys were sexually assaulted, but the girls were not. All victims were suffocated except for the third female victim who died from a gunshot wound to the head. The victims were kept by the killer or killers for periods ranging from 4 to 19 days. All victims were bathed, their nails cut and scrubbed, and their clothes neatly pressed. They were posed carefully throughout the affluent Oakland County area after their murders. On Sunday afternoon on February 15, 1976, at around 12.30 p.m., Mark Stebbins and his family, his older brother Mike, and his mother were spending time at the American Legion. Mark was a 12-year-old boy from Ferndale who collected toy soldiers and wanted to be a Marine when he grew up. He and his brother lived alone with their mother, Ruth Stebbins, after his parents got divorced when he was five. He was watching his brother play pool and was getting bored. Mark wanted to go home and watch TV, after his mother already shot him down for giving him money so he could spend it at a local hobby shop. His mother was reluctant at first, but then told him to go. The only stipulation was that he had to call her once he got there. The walk to their house was only three blocks. When Mark did not call by 7.45, Ruth called the house, but there was no answer. When Ruth arrived at the house a little before 9 p.m., Mark still wasn't there. Alarmed by this, Ruth decided that she'd wait one more hour to call the police. Mark, it would seem, was missing for about 10 hours, so Ruth finally called the police. We haven't had any kidnappings in Ferndale in 10 years, said the police. They just assumed maybe he was out with friends or possibly a runaway, and would likely turn up soon. With Mark not turning up, the police began searching abandoned buildings and searching around every possible location. According to Ruth, she stayed up all night, lying awake, the night Mark disappeared. I kept hearing noises and thinking it was Mark. And the next few days, I set three places at the table and hoped that he'd come home. Four days later, just before noon, on February 19th, in a parking lot, Mark was found dead. His body placed there, curled up as if he was sleeping near a dumpster in the parking lot of an office building at Ten Mile Road and Greenfield, which is the border between the two towns of Oak Park and Southfield. It appeared he had only been dead for less than eight hours. Mark had been washed clean by his killer and nails manicured. His clothes were washed, dried, and pressed. Then he was redressed, his shoes put back on, his coat zipped back up, and even his hood was pulled up over his head. He was then tenderly placed at the dump site in a sleeping position. Because of this, the killer would earn the nickname, the Babysitter Killer. At this point, Ferndale police were involved due to the missing persons report, and now the Southfield and Oak Park police were part of the murder investigation. An error in retrospect by police soon followed when Southfield police moved Mark's body before the county medical examiner had even had the chance to arrive at the scene. Mark's body had been taken to the Southfield Police Department rather than directly to the morgue. Police then removed Mark's clothing before he was sent to the morgue, which likely contaminated and destroyed most of the evidence in the process. The police, with the help of local psychiatrist Bruce Danto, quickly went back to the dump site and placed a child-sized mannequin dressed as Mark at the drop-off site in an attempt to lure the killer back to the scene. After Mark's funeral, at the exact spot where Mark had been placed, the police would find a funeral card from Mark's service, possibly left there by a killer as a taunt, suggesting that he was at Mark's funeral. I didn't recognize everyone who came, stated Ruth Stebbins. I might even have shaken hands with the killer. After all of this, Mark's 17-year-old brother, Michael, stopped studying and started using drugs and alcohol. He had many run-ins with the law. Ruth was too distraught to work and soon found herself depending on welfare and taking Valium from time to time. Every time Ruth hears about a child's death, it brings back memories of Mark. She said, Every time a child has been killed since Mark, it happens to me all over. I still think about it every day. Mark was held for four days by his abductor or abductors. An autopsy later revealed that he had been bound sexually assaulted, most likely with an object, and ultimately smothered. Oakland County was shocked by these events. Hearts broke for the Stebbins family. It was public knowledge what atrocities their son and brother faced. The county was on edge. Families eventually eased their tight grips on their children as ten months had passed since the abduction and murder of Mark Stebbins. There was also another distraction that took their minds off of the horrible crime. The holiday season. It was now December 22nd, 1976, and families like the Robinsons in the town of Royal Oaks were dealing with the happy times of the holiday rush, as well as the frustrating. Twelve-year-old Jill Robinson had gotten into a fight with her mother over biscuits. Her mother wanted Jill to make the biscuits for the family dinner, and she didn't want to. She yelled at her mother to shut up, and her mother uttered two words to her daughter. Get out. Jill Robinson, like I know a lot of us have done, thought she would do just that, and she decided to run away. She packed her backpack with a hairbrush, blanket, makeup, and underwear, and she put on a wool cap and parka to keep herself shielded from the Michigan winter. She climbed on her bike and disappeared into the night. It is presumed that she was headed to her father's house. The day after the disappearance, her bike was found behind a hobby store, Tiny Tim's Hobby Center on Main Street in the city where she was from. Christmas came and went for the Robinson family, their lives suspended waiting to hear news about Jill. The day after Christmas, her body was found alongside Interstate 75 near Big Beaver Road in Troy. Just like Mark, it appeared she had been taken by her killer for the four days she had been held. The only difference was that she suffered a 12-gauge shotgun blast to her face, completely removing the left side of her head. She had been cleaned thoroughly and redressed in her newly cleaned and pressed clothes. Her backpack was even put back on her shoulders. Despite being shot, it appeared that she died from shock and hemorrhage due to the shotgun blast rather than the actual wound itself. The change in method confused the police at first, made them uncertain if this was the work of Mark's killer. The body was placed within sight of the Troy police station, once again laid out neatly in the snow. The dump site appeared to have been chosen deliberately as a taunt by the killer. He almost dared the police to try and stop him. The grisly discovery was made by a passing motorist on his way home to share Christmas with his children. The case was handled improperly due to the original belief that Jill had been a runaway, and lots of evidence in her case was lost or accidentally destroyed. Neither the state police crime lab nor the sheriff's department crime lab were called to the scene. Jill's father, Tim Robinson, who was head of the English department at Oakland County Community College, was angry at the police for handling, for their handling of the case. They won't respond to what they consider a runaway for 48 hours, but she wasn't a runaway, she was a kid who got angry and stomped out of the house and got picked up by a creep. At one point during the investigation of Jill's death, an officer working on the case told the Robinsons that he hadn't even read Jill's case file, leading the family to believe that the police had given up on solving their daughter's murder. The small things that, it's the small things that get to you. The hardest thing is when someone asks how many children I have, and I automatically say three. I can't believe that it's only two now, said Carol, a teacher in the Oakland County area. According to her autopsy, there was no evidence that Jill had been sexually assaulted. It appears that she was suffocated as well as shot, and ligature marks were found on her body as well. Jill's mother released that her daughter had an irrational fear of being shot, and was even was sent to a therapist because of the anxiety she had over this. Now this leads to a lot of speculation. Did Jill beg her killer not to do this because of the fear she had, and they did it anyway as a last bit of torture distilled upon the young girl? Or did the killer try and suffocate the girl, but she only passed out from the attack? When she awoke, maybe the killer was shocked and shot the girl, just to make sure she was dead. So people are going to speculate about this a lot, because Jill's the only one who's going to be shot, whereas the other three are going to be suffocated.
0: Right. I see what you're saying. That is weird. That you know, out of all the victims that were you know killed, she was the only one that was shot.
1: Right, one is going to have a different. Right. I see way what you're saying, and I,
0: I, and I do agree with that too. You know, I
1: she... mean, I, I think it's interesting the fact that Jill was had this irrational fear of being shot, and then she was shot. So maybe this was something that she said to her captors. It's
0: possible, or like you mentioned previously, it could have just been that she was suffocated. They thought she died. And she wasn't. And they had to finish her off because they got scared.
1: Right. She woke up. They didn't know what to do. It was just easy to just shoot her. It is important to note that her dump site was around where other people were located and nobody heard the shotgun blast. So we don't know where the shotgun blast actually occurred, just that that was the cause of death.
0: Once again, that also is weird.
1: (laughs) Right. Just seven days after Jill Robinson's body was found, on January 2nd, 1977, Christine Mihalik a 10-year-old from Berkeley, was begging her mother to let her walk to 7-Eleven to pick up the newest teen magazine. Her mother, Deborah Ashcroft, relives that afternoon constantly. Chris was bored, so she asked if she could go to the store to get a magazine, Deborah recalls. She wasn't usually allowed to cross 12 Mile Road, but she had gone shopping for me earlier, so I gave in. I explained how to go, to wait for the light, and I told her to hurry and she promised she would. Mrs. Ashcroft, a twice-married divorcee, called police when Christine failed to return in half an hour. She kept a round-the-clock vigil at her Berkeley home. She went on television to beg for her daughter's release. Eating compulsively, she put on 30 pounds. Erica Ashcroft McAvoy describes the events of her stepsister's disappearance. She states her father had had to take sleeping pills in order to go to sleep, and that he went out for nights with his pistol looking for Christine himself. Neighbors had raised $17,000 in hope of a possible ransom demand, and friends had offered their mortgage to mortgage their houses out to help. Sadly, though, none of this would matter, because on January 21, 1977, Christine's body had been found on Bruce Lane in Franklin Village, Michigan. She had been held by her captors for 19 days the longest of any Oakland County child killer victim. The body was laid within view of nearby houses. Her eyes were closed and her arms were folded across her chest. Her body was also laid neatly in the snow embankment. Her body washed, clothes cleaned and pressed. She had been suffocated and had ligature marks on her body. She, like Jill Robinson, had not been sexually assaulted. Deborah Ashcroft continued working as a waitress at a bowling alley, but had a difficult time moving on. She said she does not talk to her other children about the disappearance and chooses not to see a psychiatrist. She ended her interview saying, Chris was really a joy. This is why whoever took her kept her for so long. He was enjoying her company. At least this is what we have told ourselves, and I prefer not to think any differently. After the discovery of victim number three, the authorities knew they were working with a serial offender. This is when reports were released to the public. There was a serial killer operating in the area, and he was preying upon children.
0: It's so sick, man.
1: It is. And this is when fear is going to grip all of southern Michigan, because everyone's going to be in fear that this is going to happen to their children, because all three families felt, like everyone does... This isn't something that happens to you.
0: Right, exactly. Also, I mean, it's nice, at least the one good thing that is coming out of this, unfortunately, is just like the whole community is kind of, you know, gravitating towards each other, trying to help everybody out. It's really nice. Right. You know I mean?
1: And I think that, unfortunately, they're learning the hardest way possible that maybe the area they live in isn't as safe as they thought that it once was. Right. Fear and mass hysteria swept through southeastern Michigan. The new Stranger Danger initiative is used by parents to warn their children not to talk to strangers, and what to do if a stranger approaches them. Parents now drop off and pick up their children at school, instead of allowing them to walk. The children that still have to walk to school do so in groups of six or more, under the watchful eye of parents or neighbors in safe houses. If the children feel uncomfortable at any time, they knew they could just run into these safety houses. Now, what a safety house is, is volunteers would fill out applications that are reviewed by the police, and the police also do background checks on them. So once a volunteer is approved, they get a special safe house sign, which is a white sticker with a red helping hand. So when the children are walking to or from school or just in the neighborhood in general, if they ever feel uncomfortable, all they have to do is look for a house with a sticker, and they know they can run into it at any time.
0: And that's great. Yeah, it's a great initiative.
1: It said that these safety house stickers are still on houses in southeastern Michigan wow. after this. So the residents of Oakland County were very aggressive about the protection of their children at this point. There's one incident of a man in Livonia assaulting a man who was asking two boys for directions. It turns out that the man was just on a business trip and he had no knowledge of the recent murders.
0: Hey, listen, he got a surprise, mistaken identity. But <laughs> yeah. hey, at least it, you know people are people are watching. Right.
1: One of the families that had told their children about the dangers of wandering off alone was the King family, who lived in an upscale town of Birmingham. But by all accounts, the Kings lived in a modest home, and they worked very hard to provide a good life for their four children. Their youngest son Timothy told his father not to worry, that he would know how to take care of the bad guys. But unfortunately, things are not always that simple. Roughly two months after the discovery of Christine Melick's body, the killer would strike again. On March 16, 1977, at 8.30 p.m., Timothy was home alone with some of his siblings. He asked his older sister to borrow 30 cents and then left the house skateboard in hand to buy candy at a nearby drugstore on Maple Road. The 11-year-old left the store by the rear entrance, which opened to a parking lot shared with the supermarket, and vanished. The store he went to was only 500 feet away from the restaurant his parents were eating at. Chris King, brother of Timothy, stated that he came home from babysitting that night to see police cars in his driveway. When his parents returned from dinner, they realized Timothy was not home, and they called the police. He drove his mother to Timothy's friend's house, but the lights in the house were out. Everything was completely dark. He said to his mother, I'll go up and knock anyway. And she started to cry and just said, no, he's not there. And from that moment on, he says it was horrible because you knew what was going on and you knew the clock was ticking. Chris searched the whole night armed with a baseball bat. An extensive search was executed that covered the Detroit metropolitan area and there was widespread media coverage, already heavy with the news of the prior three slayings. In an emotional television appeal, Timothy's father, Barry King, begged the abductors to release his son unharmed. He added, we love you. If you miss Little League tryouts tomorrow, Mr. Ryder said that you could come try out next week. And in a letter printed in the Detroit News, Marion King wrote, that she hoped Timothy could come home soon so he could get his favorite meal of Kentucky Fried Chicken. The disappearance of Timothy King was a little different than the abductions of the past. In fact, they gave police their first lead, kind of. Under hypnosis, two witnesses described a mutton-chopped young man that they had seen talking to Tim by a blue gremlin in a drugstore's parking lot. All of the tri-state area was now looking for Timothy King, the man produced in the new sketch, and a blue gremlin with a white stripe down its side.
0: I just want to say one thing: a gremlin is the worst car ever.
1: It's very ugly. Uh, like I
0: must is. have said, I said that in the, a couple episodes back. But this car truly is it takes the, the most ugliest car. Yeah, it wins the award. But anyway, go ahead.
1: And <laughs> we're gonna get back to the blue gremlin later because it has been proved since. And most investigators believe that it actually was not a blue gremlin that was involved in the abductions of the children. Another interesting difference is that the King family is the first family that is not divorced. And it was prior, it was believed prior to the abduction of Timothy King that maybe the predator was preying on children of separated parents. That maybe it was just easier to get to the children. They were traveling back and forth to the houses. So they did think that it was interesting that this is the first abduction of a non divorcee couple. Right.
0: Plus, I mean, even though these parents are separated, they live very closely within the town.
1: And by all accounts, it seems that they had very good relationships with each other in dealing with the children and the separation. Right. Obviously, you know, when this began, the first people that are going to be looked into are going to be the parents... I know there was a heavy concentration on the babysitters of these children, but everyone was cleared. So they knew that it had to have been an outside person because everyone in-house was cleared of any suspicion very early on in the investigation. The search for Timothy King ended on March twenty second, 1977, when his warm body was found 11 miles from his home. Two teenagers in a car spotted his body in a shallow ditch along Gill Road, about 300 feet south of 8 Mile Road in Livonia, just across the county road in Wayne County. His skateboard was placed beside his body. His clothes were washed and neatly pressed. He had been sexually assaulted with an object and suffocated. He had ligature marks just as the other victims had. The post-mortem autopsy report showed that Timothy had eaten fried chicken before his death. So while discussing the victims of these horrible, horrible crimes, I think we should go over some of the children that had been suspected victims of the Oakland County child killer. It's because of variations in their cases or proved perpetrators that they haven't been connected directly with the killer. But one of these cases in particular, I think, is of high importance, especially when we're talking about Jill Robinson's murder. There are two girls who were considered in the case, but their circumstances I consider to be extremely different from the previous four murders we discussed. I believe the only thing that's linking these two victims to the Oakland County Child's Killers murders is the age. The first is Cynthia Cadeau, who was abducted and bludgeoned to death on the evening of January 15th, 1976. She was found nude and battered hours after her abduction. There's no way that this person is the same person that did the Oakland County murders only because they were disposed of so carefully, I think. And if we look at the date of this murder, it's only a month prior to that of Mark Stebbins. So I don't think a killer would change their MO in just one month.
0: No, I mean they have they're very uh, they go over every detail like with a fine-tooth comb. They're going to make sure that when they're doing this that it's 100% right. They're not going to leave any room for error.
1: Right. This person seems to be very meticulous in what they're doing and how they're disposing of the bodies. That definitely didn't happen with the Cynthia Cadeau case. The second is Sheila Schrock, a 14-year-old girl who was raped and shot dead while babysitting on January 20th, 1976. My biggest fear is a babysitter. (laughs) However, her killer was found when a neighbor admitted that he saw the... Listen to this. When he saw the attack from his roof while working on snow removal. And he gave a full description of the attacker.
0: Could you imagine being in the, that guy's shoes?
1: Could you imagine being in her shoes and the neighbors watching you get attacked?
0: I mean, both. Why
1: didn't he get from down? I would have slipped off I know, I, I, w- I, I know. I know that we really, I don't, we're not in his shoes. We don't know what happened. We don't know how fast this happened. But if she was raped, get off the roof. Yeah, Come I mean, down. Calm down,
0: you know, and call the police.
1: So later, Oliver Rhodes Andrews would later confess to this crime. So these two girls, I think it's highly, highly unlikely that the same killer is going to be responsible for the murders. There is one suspected victim of the Oakland County child killer that I think holds some water. That would be James Davidson, a 13 year old boy who was on his way to a friend's house when he was abducted on June 22, 1974 from Allen Park in Wayne County. His bike was found three blocks away from his house. He was strangled and left face down in an alleyway in Oakland County on June 26th, four days after his abduction. He was found in the clothes he was abducted in. However, his attacker did not know that he had only strangled the boy to the point where he passed out. Davidson survived the attack. Hmm.
0: This one's interesting because it's very well possible that whoever did all these other murders that we previously talked about this could have been one where this was he their was first experimenting run. first run and they made
1: mistakes correct and then since they made the mistakes and they knew this happened with Davidson that he had survived they now brought a gun along with them
0: which explains the second child
1: which explains why Jill Robinson was shot right so this could have been a first attempt by the killer did happen years prior to the Mark Stebbins abduction, but I think that of all the people suspected of being possible victims of the Oakland County child killer, I think that James Davidson is the one that comes the closest, definitely. I agree. Now that the Oakland County child killer, who at the time was known as the babysitter killer, had claimed four victims, the Michigan State Police are going to head up a task force to solve these murders. Law enforcement officials from 13 communities would group together to form the task force devoted solely to the investigation at the time the largest this country had ever seen the law enforcement assistance administration gave the task force 671 thousand dollars in grants at its height the force was comprised of 300 members of detectives from the nine various oakland and wayne county communities Because remember, there's a lot of police forces that are going to be involved in this investigation because you have the communities from which the children were abducted in, so their home communities, plus where the bodies are found. There's going to be a lot of fighting between the different departments and who's going to solve this case and who has what evidence and who's not releasing it to who and who tried to take the body first to their police department. And there's going to be a lot of mess ups and there's going to be a lot of lost evidence because of this.
0: I mean, it's a shame. It is a shame. It's a shame because if all these people just all these departments, you know, who cares about jurisdiction? Just let's focus on catching this person or people
1: that are involved in this. And that's why the task force is going to be put together. So all of these communities could now work together. So the nine various communities are going to Get together under the task force, as well as the county sheriff from Oakland and Wayne County, as well as their prosecutors. The state police are going to get involved, and so is the FBI because of the the missing children. Right. The task force checked 18,000 tips, which resulted in about two dozen arrests on unrelated charges and the busting of a multi-state child pornography ring operating on North Fox Island. Trust me, we're going to get back to this because this is a big big thing involved in this case. The force will clear 7,400 suspects, trace 3,000 blue gremlins, and screen countless hours of confiscated child pornography. Could you imagine having that job?
0: I would not want that at all.
1: And they checked up on 10,000 sexual deviants registered in this system. So there was a clean sweep of the area, whether it be with people who were charged with sex crimes against children or owners of blue gremlins, but people were brought in to be questioned. A lot of them were given lie detector tests. Psychiatrists worked together with the FBI to create a profile of the killer. Their findings were as follows. He had a job that gave him freedom of movement or time to travel. He may have appeared to be someone that the child trusted, police, clergyman, a doctor. He is familiar with the area, and he has a place, to, now I keep saying he, could be her, has a place to keep children for long periods of time without rousing the suspicion of neighbors. So what the FBI is saying is that the person needed to have all of these things to be the killer, and that if they use that to weed out these 10,000 people that they have to look at, that'll help them zero in on somebody.
0: Right. I mean, that makes sense.
1: Right. One of the psychiatrists that worked on the task force was Dr. Bruce Danto from the neighboring St. Clair County. If you remember, Danto had been involved since the discovery of Mark Stebbins' body. He was the one who thought if they placed the mannequin there, maybe the killer would come back to see if the body had been found. So that was his idea.
0: That's pretty smart on his part, actually.
1: Right. And that's going to be, you know, a lot of killers are going to reveal that like when We see that Ted Bundy is going to help try to look for the Green River killer, and he's going to say he's going to go back to the bodies. A lot of killers do that. They go back to the site to kind of relive that moment for themselves. For
0: them, it's a high. Right. Yeah.
1: He also worked on the Jimmy Hoffa case just prior to the Oakland County child Killer one. Interesting. Yes. The Oakland County prosecutor, L. Brooks Patterson... That's one of the possible things that they think Jimmy Hoffa... He was cremated and his ashes were put on Patterson's front lawn. That's one of the theories. There's a million of them. I know, but I'm just saying that's one. (laughs) I am bringing up Danto specifically because he was extremely vocal in the case. He used several television appeals to talk directly to the killer. To taunt him in ways. Danto stated in an interview with the Detroit News afterwards... I'm in there to shake the apple tree, to get him to blow his cool so that he will betray himself somehow. Call me, write to me, or take a shot at me. Something. And something similar to that did happen. Two weeks after the discovery of Timothy King's body, a poorly written and spelled letter was sent to him. The letter, he said, was guilt-ridden. The man identified himself as Allen. He claimed that he was in a sadomasochistic relationship and was the slave of his roommate Frank, who was the Oakland County child killer. Allen stated that he was losing his sanity and feeling both endangered and suicidal. Danto said he felt the feelings were genuinely displayed in the letter. He said that he accompanied Frank on many road trips, seeking boys, but was never present during the abductions of the boys he murdered. He said Frank owned a, bru- a blue gremlin, but junked it in Ohio, and it was never to be seen again. He said that Frank was traumatized by killing children in the Vietnam War, in which both he and Alan served. He said Frank was taking revenge on the rich people from Birmingham and places like that that did not have to go to the war like they did. What I think he's trying to possibly say is that as boys, they were sent off to Vietnam, but the boys of the rich kids didn't have to go. So now what they were doing is taking the boys or the children of the rich.
0: Right. Which, I mean, for those, cho- uh, those, men, those young men that fought in the war, that happened very often. Correct.
1: To know that Danto read the letter, Allen requested that he print the words, Weather Bureau says trees to bloom in three weeks, in the Sunday Free Press edition. They did just that, and soon after, Danto received a call from Allen who said he could provide photographic evidence in exchange for a letter from the Michigan governor at the time, William Milliken, that would guarantee him immunity. The psychiatrist arranged to meet Allen at the bar called the Pony Cart Bar near Detroit's exclusive Palmer Woods neighborhood. Allen did not show, and he was never heard from again. Now, despite all investigating, and the money provided to the task force, which seems like it's a lot of money, but if you think about the fact that there's 300 people there, plus all the overtime they're putting in, it really wasn't that much money that was provided to the task force. I mean, you, got, force.
0: you have police officers, detec- you know, detectives. You have, uh, you know,
1: FBI, FBI, state, FBI police, state police, Sheriff.
0: everything. Psychologists. That Money goes pretty quickly.
1: It does, especially when you're talking about trying to get the word out there. And trying to get everyone in the surrounding area involved in this investigation somehow. The money didn't go that far. However, I do have to say that the task force was disbanded pretty quickly and we'll get into that. So despite all the investigating and money provided to the task force, little information was found on the Oakland County child killer. The task force was disbanded in December of 1978 and the investigation was then completely turned over to the Michigan State Police. Throughout the years, the case has been reopened or investigated again several times. For example, in 1999, a body of a known pedophile, David Norberg, was exhumed and his DNA was compared to DNA found on the victims. However, they proved not to be a match. The case was also reinvestigated in 2005, 2008, 2010, and then again in 2012-2013. We will be going over why the case was reinvestigated, what was discovered, and what the public isn't told. During this time, it is important to note that the families of the victims have felt that the investigators have not been forthcoming with them in regards to the information about the investigations. Now, this may be for many reasons. But what seems to be evident is the fact that the Oakland County child killer case remains open. And what the investigators choose to share regarding the questioning or consideration of suspects may need to be withheld. So that's the difference. It's not a closed case. So it is the right of investigators to withhold certain information from the families, but the families feel like they're not getting any information. So there's right.
0: I understand both sides. Yeah. For sure.
1: Over the years, the parents of all victims have brought lawsuits against the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office or the Michigan State Police. One of the most successful of these lawsuits is that of Barry King, who will bring a lawsuit against the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office. Under the Freedom of Information Act, King requested all files that they had on the Oakland County child's killer. He did this in 2010. And eventually, in 2011, 3,400 documents were released to the King family.
0: I mean, that's incredible. I mean, at least they got something.
1: At least they got some of the, informa- the information that they had requested.
0: I mean, I couldn't but imagine it... being the father, you know, no. I mean, and sifting and through And reading all of through this, that. That's incredible. That's Oh, my God.
1: It is through the evidence given to the King family and what they discovered through the documents that they determined who and why these horrible crimes might have been committed 40 years ago. Okay. Before we get into the possible suspects and what the King family discovered through the attainment of police documents, I warn you that the information will be very graphic and disturbing. It may also seem like we are kind of taking you all over the place and we're leading you down a rabbit hole, but I promise that the information will come full circle and it won't be the only theory we discuss. Remember before when we mentioned the North Fox Island pedophile ring that was taken down by the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force? Let's discuss that a little bit further, unfortunately. North Fox Island was an island in Traverse Bay, outside of Traverse City, Michigan. Someone using an assumed name had purchased the island and put in an airplane runway. That person was Francis Sheldon. A graduate from yale university in researching this man i came across an article in the detroit free press from sunday december 28th 1975 so this is only a few months before the abduction of mark Stebbins. the article spoke of a man whose family obtained their riches through dry goods and investment properties he said that he bought the island to take in the quiet and natural beauty The article was focused mainly on the incredible deer hunting that took place on the island, and went on to say that Sheldon worked closely with the Big Brother Association and sat on the boards of other child welfare associations. He was also one of the founding members of Brother Paul's children's mission, whose goal was to help assist the underprivileged children of Michigan. Sheldon states that he often takes the children to the island with him, whether through Big Brother or the mission. In a direct quote from the article, he says, I go to Fox Island more than I should, but not as much as I'd like to. A quote that in retrospect is one of the most sinister things I've ever read.
0: It's disgusting. Yeah.
1: Because Francis Sheldon's Fox Island fantasy is going to come crashing down when two boys ages 10 and 14 admit to their families what's really happening on Fox Island. Sheldon and his associate, Dyer Grossman, were heading a pedophilia ring in which boys were brought to the island, raped, forced to perform sexual acts on each other, all while they were being taped and photographed. The men will soon learn that there is no honor among thieves when many associates are going to give up information in turn for lesser charges. For example, Gerald Richards, who was a physical education teacher, and fellow founder of the brother Paul's mission is going to confess that the mission's tax fronts were set up to fund the child pornography ring. And during his trial, his daughter is going to testify that when he had a doctor's office, because he deemed himself some type of like naturopath who would solve things through healing. She witnessed him doing unspeakable things to children. She even confessed that she saw him murder a child.
0: Which is hard. Well, which is hard for, for the her daughter to, come, to come, out and f- come forth against her father. Oh, what a crazy web.
1: It gets worse with Richards. Oh, He's going to later testify in front of the U.S. Senate in 1977 as part of their sessions on the protection of children against sexual exploitation. That one of the places that Fox Island Ring would obtain their children from was Port Huron, Flint, and Detroit. Side note here. Francis Sheldon is never going to be brought to trial. He escapes to the Netherlands, a place that rarely extradites. Since then, he has been the subject of much controversy. Reports of Sheldon's death has reached the United States in 1996, but many believe with strong evidence on their side that Sheldon did not die in 1996, but rather changed his identity to that of Frank Torrey and continues to run his pedophile ring. The same thing has been said about Grossman. Now, just an aside, this is something that is brought up. I don't think it holds too much weight because it is such a common name. But remember in the Allen letters, they refer to, he said that his partner's name is Frank. Could this be a possible Frank connection?
0: I see what you're saying there.
1: It's something that's possible, but Frank is also a very common name. So let's not read into it too, too much. So the North Fox Island pedophile ring has two connections to the Oakland County child killer murders, albeit loose connections, but here they are. First, the testimony that connects the rings with taking kids from Detroit, quite possibly the Cass Corridor child pedophile ring, which we're going to discuss next, and a suspect named Chris Bush. It's important to note that the King family and most of the other families involved do believe that Chris Bush is the number one suspect in the murder of their loved ones. So Chris Bush is associated with the North Fox Island Pedophile Ring and eventually the Cass Corridor Child Pedophile Ring. Chris Bush was a son of a high-level General Motors executive. Bush, who was 26 at the time of the first abduction, was arrested and convicted four times for sex crimes against children, but barely spent any time in jail. Now, we're going to see this happen a lot in the 1970s through this case and through other cases that you see. A lot of these men who have done unthinkable things to children, it's not their first offense ever. Which, at for
0: this time, it just seems like... Uh... They just got away with it. It wasn't, there wasn't law, like law enforcement and there wasn't any laws uh, implemented to really keep these guys, to protect children, right, and to keep these guys away.
1: And unfortunately, it was also something that dealt with the negative connotation of homosexuality at the time in the 1970s. Right. Whereas when a child would say that he had been raped or molested by another man, the police would write it off and not want to get involved with it because it involved elements of homosexuality so that's another unfortunate thing that's going to stop a lot of these men from being prosecuted so according to the traverse city record eagle in articles from february and march of 1977 the final charge involved an association with brother paul's child mission and the north fox island pedophilia ring bush was found in flint michigan with his associate gregory green and in their possession was eight rolls of film that displayed graphic images of children they were charged with criminal sexual misconducts involving boys ages 10 to 14. Police say as many as 50 children were involved in these images. Oh, God. Gregory Green was held on $75,000 bail, not being able to make the bond payment. Bush's lawyer was able to talk down his bail to a $1,000 cash bond, and he walked out that day. During the investigation of these two men, it was it was uncovered that Green had passed charges of kidnapping and sexual and the sexual assault of an underage boy, and spent time in a psychiatric ward. However, he was able to check himself out. Bush had three prior convictions. The two also failed polygraph tests miserably, which involved questions regarding. The Oakland County Child Killer questions especially about the abduction of Mark Stebbins. Green received a life sentence. Bush was given probation.
0: And this is the prime example of what happens when you have rich daddy.
1: Exactly. And I think that they just wanted to kind of keep this quiet under the radar.
0: Especially since he's an executive for General Motors.
1: Right. In the 1970s. Right. Now, Bush is going to walk out a free man. And three weeks later... Timothy King is going to be abducted. So if Bush is, in fact, the person who abducts King, three weeks prior, he was in police custody. And if they just would have really, for his fourth time, committing a crime against a child, if they would have held him, they could have possibly saved Timothy King's life.
0: And I just want to say quickly, that is unbelievable. Because those cops in that department has a lot of explaining to do.
1: If Green is going to get a life sentence for what he did, and he only had one prior conviction, how come Bush didn't get a life sentence and he had three prior right. convictions? Right, and also,
0: I hope those people were able to sleep at night, because he prob- he most likely did kidnap King. So I hope they're all happy about that, because...
1: Or at least have him under investigation, because he failed a polygraph test regarding questions about Mark Stevens.
0: It's unbelievable. That is such a cover-up, it's not even funny.
1: Well, at the age of 27 on January 20th, 1978, the Bush family maid found Chris Bush dead in his bedroom from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot blow to the head. In the pictures of the scene of the suicide, there was found ropes with blood on them just outside of his closet, and a pencil sketching of a young boy was found tacked to the board in his room. The boy in the picture was screaming in agony, And had his hood up. The boy very closely resembles Mark Stebbins. And was wearing the clothes he had on. It was an unreleased piece of evidence to the point that Mark Stebbins was found with his hood up. So nobody knew that Mark Stebbins was found with his hood up. The killers and the police knew.
0: At the time, this was something that they didn't have as evidence. Right. Right.
1: Since the collection of the evidence, the bloody ligatures have been lost or misplaced in a chain of custody. So, they were never tested for DNA evidence. But bloody ropes were found in the room of Chris Bush and they were never tested.
0: Which screams cover up. Because when a police department gets evidence, they, I mean, they're going to bag and tag. They're, even if it's destroyed, they're gonna, there's going to be like a, a book even that has, oh, we found this, you know, wherever. There's going to be a document somewhere that shows where it went.
1: There is a document that shows that the ropes were taken into custody, but there's the chain of custody stops and the ropes aren't where they're supposed to be is really what happens. And we know that they were there at the scene because they were in the initial pictures taken when police arrived at the scene.
0: Also, one more thing. If we actually had those bloody literatures right now, with the technology that we have today, we would be able to pinpoint exactly who whose blood that was on there and it would have tied everything together.
1: Right. At the scene, the shotgun was lying next to Bush's body, something that would have been impossible due to the fact that he shot himself between the eyes, but his death was still deemed a suicide. Another sign that points to the involvement of Bush is the fact that white dog hairs were found on all four victims. At the time of the murders, the Bush family owned a white-haired Welsh terrier. It was reported by neighbors also that Bush's parents were often away vacationing in Europe or that his mother would accompany his father on business trips. This would allow Bush to have the house to himself for extended periods of time. And I would be curious to know if any of these trips coincided with the abductions. Unfortunately, before his death, Chris Bush's father had all family documents shredded. And this is another fact. Because we think, okay, maybe this is happening at Bush's house because his parents are away. But the Bush family also has a vacation home on S Lake. And on March 19th, 1977, in the midst of Timothy King's abduction, a woman, knowing that Bush was a sex offender, called police to let them know that she saw Bush with minor boys near his family cottage on S Lake. Just a reminder, King was taken on the 16th. This was reported on the 19th and King's body was found on the 22nd.
0: Also, to just expand on that, these boys were held for a few, you know, a long period of time.
1: And it could be at this lake house. It could be house. that
0: they were at that lake house exactly.
1: Right, so it doesn't matter if his parents were away on business no, or not. Not at all, it doesn't matter. The final connection between Bush and the Oakland County child killer is a man named James Vincent Gunnels. In 2012, it was determined that Gunnels was a partial DNA match to a hair found on the blouse of Christine Melick, There was only a partial match because the hair was so deteriorated that only a partial match was made possible. As a teenager, Gunnels was repeatedly sexually assaulted by Bush at his family cabin on S Lake. Gunnels was victimized, groomed, and then used to recruit other boys for Bush. Gunnels was tracked down at a halfway house he was living in after being released in 2011 for property crimes. It's important to know that Gunnels was never accused of or convicted of crimes against children. Police did not have enough evidence to charge him with the crime of the murder of Christine Melick. Gunnels states, I'm not guilty. There it is. But at the same time, I know how the state police twist their words to their advantage my heart goes out to those families. It really, really does. I don't feel they were served justice through any of this. Gunnels reached out to the King family, especially Timothy King's brother, Chris, and asked to meet with them. Chris and his father, Barry, went to meet with Gunnels. After the meeting, Barry King said, I think the story he told Chris and I is believable, but it was contradicted by previous stories that he had told other people. Gunnels told the Kings that Bush was a child predator who lived in Oakland County. He denies knowing anything about the murders, but Chris King thinks he has to know something. Chris King, during their meeting, asked Gunnels about the two polygraph tests that he took. He apparently cheated on the first and failed the second. Gunnels evaded the question by expressing how terrible he feels for the family, and he can't imagine what it feels like not knowing answers. Police have access to this entire conversation between Gunnels and the King family. Gunnels ended his official statement by saying, I say right now, I have no idea what that man did to anyone else. And I mean, it just seems a huge possibility that Gunnels is the victim himself and that he may be in denial that he's even a part of anything that took place because if he was a recruiter for other young boys he did horrible things but he's also a victim
0: absolutely i, I agree with you 100 he's a victim just like they were and i mean he had maybe it's true maybe he does know more than he's saying
1: but in order to survive but in order live, to survive he can't right. admit it
0: right of course People do things when you know their life's at stake, maybe he was being you know, i mean it's called threatened. sexual
1: it's sexual coercion is yeah. what it is where he is being forced to do something or he's told his life is going to end, or you know Bush is threatening him with something I mean this bush he's not a good guy, and I think Gunnels wants to disassociate himself with Bush as much as possible i mean it's you could tell that he feels remorse or he wouldn't have wanted to meet the King family. he has to know something. But I don't think he's ready to admit it to himself that he knows something. Right. And in October of 2006 or 2008, there's conflicting accounts. The police are going to search the Bush family house. Now, obviously, um, this is after the death of the members of the Bush family. But what they do is they get up into the air ducts and they vacuum them out in hopes of finding DNA that could have have been found or fibers that could have been found on the children but the results of that search have never been released so no one knows what was found at the bush house and i don't see i think that the cover-up regarding the bush family ended at their death so i feel like if i mean he was just an executive at general motors which tanked after the 70s. I mean, they're not really... Prote- I think it's more than Bush being protected. I think Bush is a... He's low well on the totem pole here. I really think it goes above him just having a rich dad.
0: Oh, I do too. I do too. I mean, I, he's he's definitely taking the fall. Well, I mean, multiple people have taken the fall already, but more so for Chris Bush. He's definitely taking the fall for right. something higher than him.
1: Because it looks like the evidence that we've been given so far with Bush is a slam dunk. He's the one who did it. But... In looking at the evidence as a whole, we've discovered that Bush is really only a slice of the pie, and there's other things to consider. So before we discuss the next piece of this twisted world, we have to explain to you what Cass Corridor is. And Cass Corridor is a project area of Detroit that meets with the wealthy section of Bloomfield Hills, which by the way is where Bush lived. And it's a six-block section of Detroit that is filled with drug dealers, prostitutes, bars, and extreme poverty. Criminals working out of Cass Corridor are going to abduct boys and sell them to affluent buyers. The men would cruise the neighborhoods, approaching children in lower-income areas, and offer them money or food in exchange for sexual favors. And some of these children were so poor that they agreed to do so for even a few bites of food. In some cases, these men would approach single mothers and pay bills in exchange for time with their boys. Some mothers, desperate and not being able to support their families, would unfortunately agree to this. These favors got more violent and sadistic. These men knew what they were doing. They were sexual predators. They were grooming these boys. And eventually, the boys that kept returning... Because they trusted these men, when the men said they wouldn't do those sadistic things anymore, and the kids would come back, the men would kidnap them. Most of them would be held in the basement of this bike shop that was located in Cass Corridor. It was this bike shop in Cass Corridor that seemed to be the haven for these pedophiles in the area. And the men would hold the children as long as they wanted to use them. Some of the kids were able to leave. Some of them joined the crew because the boys that were a part of the crew were victimized less and they became recruiters to try and get younger kids to join. And that's what we saw with Gunnels and with Bush. And some were never seen again. Some of these kids were also taken to Fox Island for pictures and parties with the highest bidder. Now, we learn all of this through the story of a man named Richard Lawson. Richard Lawson was caught by police in Pennsylvania in 2005 for the robbery homicide of a cab driver in Detroit in 1989. When questioned about this, Lawson knew he had some information that would be of interest to the police and possibly help him with his sentencing. He blurted out, I know who did the Michigan snow killings. Now, just so you know, at the time, the murders of the four children were also referred to as the, Mich- the Michigan snow killings because the children were laid out on snowbanks. Lawson told the story of his friend, Theodore Lamborghini, who was one of the men from Cass Corridor. Lawson explains that he, some, he, meaning Lamborghini, sometimes got carried away. On certain occasions, he would bring the kids from Cass Corridor to the rich sections of town to parties. Now, what's the rich section of town next to Cass Corridor? The town where Bush lives. So this could be a possibility as to why the children all had the white dog hairs on their bodies was possibly because they were taken to a party at Bush's house.
0: And this also is how we get the connection.
1: The connection between Cass Corridor and the North Fox rank. Right. Because if we can make make the stretch that the kids were brought into Bush's house, maybe they were taken to North Fox Island. We don't know. Or the people from North Fox Island are paying for at least the pictures of the children.
0: And no matter what, there, I mean, there's so many days that they were missing. Yes. Anything could have happened within, the, within that time. Especially
1: because we're talking about people who have money, who have private planes. There's a private uh, airstrip. On North Fox Island.
0: And really quick, to me, it sounds like that movie Hostel, where like these kids are being, you know, offered to the the highest bidder. Yeah.
1: The police suspected that in the past there may have been hundreds involved in these party networks. And they don't mean hundreds of children, they mean hundreds of pedophiles.
0: It's so sick.
1: At these parties, everyone brought a kid to share. And children were raped, molested. Photographed and then thrown in a bathtub or hosed off. And this is an interesting piece of information that was received from children who survived these parties. And this seems to be an MO of the Oakland County child killer in bathing these children after what had happened to them. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but what possibly could be happening is that these men who are offering money to the, the, this highest bidder Maybe the highest bidder got carried away, or maybe they didn't want to stop at the sexual abuse of a child, maybe they wanted to murder a child, and maybe we're think maybe we're being confronted with one horrible sick individual who wanted to murder a child, and that's what we're seeing with these four kids
0: I agree it's totally possible
1: so Lawson is going to say that he knows who did the Michigan snow killings. Because one day, he's with Lamborghini, and they go to the house of Bob Moore. Remember that bike shop I told you about? Bob Moore is the owner of that bike shop, where all the kids would be held in his basement. And Lamborghini and Moore are going to take out a photo album in which they kept pictures of all of their victims. And on the cover of this book, he said that it was called Our Sweethearts. They had stopped at a picture of a boy who wasn't one of the poor children from Cass. They described him as being from the other side of 8 Mile. The kid was clean, and he had nice clothes on. And Lawson said that Lamborghini looked at Moore and said, Looks like the king boy, doesn't it? And he winked. Lamborghini has since been charged Well after this comes out, after Lawson says this, they do go and they arrest Lamborghini. And when looking into him, they find that they could charge him with 15 counts of various sexual crimes against other children, not the four children involved in the murders. So now Lamborghini is facing 15 counts of various sexual crimes against children. And the police offer him a lesser sentence if he agrees to just take a polygraph test regarding the Oakland County child's killings. He refuses to do so. And because he refused to do so, he's now serving three life sentences. And the judge ended his trial reminding him what happens to people like him in the prison system.
0: Well, wow. Karma. Full circle. Yeah.
1: Now on a side note, in October of 2007, the family of Mark Stebbins filed a wrongful death suit against him, Lamborghini, seeking $25,000. The lawsuit alleges Lamborghini held Stebbins captive for four days in or near his Royal Oak House before smothering him to death during a sexual assault. The attorney for the family states money is secondary. Now, if we're looking for a direct relationship between the Cass Corridor pedophile ring and the Oakland County child killings, it's going to be through a man named Archibald Sloan. He was a known pedophile operating within the Cass Corridor area, and he was a known associate of Moore, Lamborghini, and Lawson. He became a person of interest when hairs in his 1966 Pontiac Bonneville were a DNA match for hairs found on the bodies of Mark Stebbins and Timothy King. However, they were not a DNA match for Sloan himself. Sloan is going to later admit to police that he lent his car out to other pedophile friends of his all the time. So did he lend the car out to Ted Lamborghini and Bob Moore? And possibly Richard Lawson, who's just saying that he's not involved but knows all this information about the case anyway. Hmm. I mean, it's a big possibility. Absolutely. So I believe that it's the following three pieces of evidence that connects Cass Corridor with the North Fox Island ring. And if it doesn't connect it to the North Fox ring, it at the very least shows that there's a connection between the killings and the Cass Corridor pedophile ring. All four victims have white dog hair, which is most likely from Bush's family dog. And if the dog hair doesn't connect them to Bush, then the DNA on Gunnel's does. And the hair in Sloan's car connects them with various Cass Corridor associates. So most likely... When we take a look at the DNA evidence from afar and all of the different people it's connected to, it seems like these kids were passed around this pedophile ring.
0: Right. And are you trying to say that they're passed on in the ring and that's why they were, they were missing for a, a pretty long time? Yeah. I, before they were brought back dead.
1: I think that's why they were missing for such a long period of time. I think that the people that these rich people that were wanting to by these children were not happy with the fact that they were getting kids from Cass Corridor these poor children who weren't taken care of so they wanted children that were more taken care of and that's why now they're going to look outside of Cass Corridor and that's why you get these four abductions that are going to take place and that's why they're taking for so long that's why you're going to see these bodies dumped back Because these aren't kids from Cass Corridor. These are kids from affluent families, or at least, at the very least, not poor families. So because they're so high profile, they do have to dump these kids. And when they do dump them, they want to make sure that as much DNA evidence is not on them as possible, and that's why they were bathed. Right. I mean, it's also a possibility, too. A lot of people have said that the cleaning of the children is a mockery against the parents. Whereas I took your kid and look, now they're, I left them better off than they were when I took them kind of thing.
0: See, I, I, I get what you're saying. The only thing that I don't agree with with your statement is that... If these kids came from affluent families and they were, you know, quote unquote you know, well off or whatever and they weren't right. poor, then I don't really that that really doesn't mesh well. I mean, if these were kids from cast corridor and they were cleaned and their f- 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 you know, stuff was pressed and stuff, then I could see, oh, I I took right, them I get and, what I, you're and I made them better than what they were cuz they're poor and they're in like uh, right, and but they're these in rags. Weren't like that these kids me. were not like that to begin with. So that's the only thing where I just don't agree with it.
1: Right. That's it, the only thing. It could also be a showing of remorse of what happened. I could
0: see that. Because remember, there's multiple people involved.
1: Right, maybe it's a person like Gunnels, for example, who was involved in the... Kidnapping of the children didn't want to be, but was forced to be involved with taking them, and now they're remorseful, and that's why they're taking care of the children. After and death. maybe
0: that's what he is actually holding back from when he talked to the King family. Maybe that's his other part of his involvement is cleaning the kids after maybe. they were killed. You know, you know that's something that I thought of. You know, I mean, anything's possible here, but that would be where your remorse comes from.
1: Right now. When we talk about the suicide of Bush and the fact that it may have looked staged, I think that's an interesting avenue to go down and to see that maybe Bush didn't evade all of his convictions because he was the son of a wealthy businessman. Maybe it was because he was doing the dirty work for other rich men. Now, we see suicide, like with Bush and other people, of that are associated with Cass Corridor. So maybe the heat was so high from this, these Oakland County child murders that these higher ups thought someone's got to take the fall for this. So let's make that person be Chris Bush, because when you look at Bush's suicide, it's actually kind of ridiculous where if Bush is the person that actually committed these crimes and he went so out of his way to clean these children, to press their clothes, to clean their nails, to strip them of DNA evidence. like He was that meticulous and careful, but then at his suicide site, he's going to leave bloody ropes laying out and a drawn picture of Mark Stebbins. On the wall. On the wall. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. I I just think that it's so obviously set up for Bush to take the fall for the Oakland County killings. Also,
0: really quick, I have a question for you. Um, did the, the, the mother and father of Bush, did they know what he was charged with? Like, did they have, did they have any idea?
1: Yes, they, they definitely knew what Bush was doing. They worked hard. They hired a very powerful attorney for each of his convictions. He was able to get off on lesser charges. He never served jail time, but really what they did was they disassociated themselves with him. His parents are going to spend most of their time vacationing in Europe or going off on business trips. When Bush started showing his deviant behaviors when he was a child, they actually sent him away to boarding school in Europe. So they tried to separate themselves with him. And even at his death, Chris Bush's father didn't even mention the fact that Chris Bush was his son the reason in why his I, obituary.
0: The reason why I ask you that is because if I was trying to say if the father didn't know or didn't pay for him to make bo- uh, to make bail. I was going to say maybe someone higher up. That's where it comes from. Where like, okay, you can keep taking a fall, Bush, no problem. I'll get you out. I'll pay for it. That's where I was going with
1: it. I see what you're saying. And maybe... The fact that Chris Bush did have these wealthy connections is why the people of these pedophile rings liked him so much. Because here's this guy that can go out and get kids for you, but then he's also going to be protected legally because of the wealth of his parents. Right. So maybe that's why they held on to him for so long. Right. So some of the questionable things that are going to come up in regards to Bush's suicide is the following. First, the position of the gun. First of all, he shoots himself with a shotgun and he shoots himself between the eyes. So when people are going to shoot themselves with a shotgun, I mean, it's not something that never happens, but what they'll do sometimes is use a clothes hanger to pull the trigger because it's so long, but it's very bizarre that he was shot in between the eyes with a shotgun. Not saying that's not possible, but he would have to use another object to pull the trigger.
0: Or someone. Or someone.
1: Or, well, hold on. We're saying if this is a suicide. Right. So if he does do it that way, the gun has to be positioned on the floor somewhere. It's not going to wind up next to his body on his bed.
0: No way. It's going to fall to the floor.
1: Right. And the maid says that she does not touch the scene when she discovers it. So nothing was moved.
0: Hmm.
1: So that's the first thing. Second... There was a lack of measurable gunshot residue on the hands of Chris Bush. So, I mean, it's not completely rare with shotgun suicides, only because sometimes, like I said, they use an object. But where he shot himself is bizarre and the situation of the gun, again. Also, it's important to note that the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force is going to disband themselves one month. After his suicide,
0: which makes you think that they knew it was Chris Bush and it was, and it was I kind of a, a closed deal. case, yeah,
1: kind of thing. Yeah, it's very interesting the timing of the ending of the task force. Also, this is coming from the King family. They were told that Bush was cleared as a suspect in the Stebbins murder case. Remember when him and Green got arrested? They let him go because they said, oh, he's not a part of the Oakland County child killings. That's why he was released. So how come at his suicide, 18 months later, it's the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force that comes to take a look at the suicide scene?
0: It's very odd.
1: Very odd. If he's a cleared suspect, why are they investigating it? Right. And the two detectives from the task force that investigated it, their names are Ron Pierce and John Davis, how come they were never interviewed? We don't know what their feelings were or what their observations were or their conclusions were at the site of his suicide. They've never been released, and the King family does not have any information regarding any of this in those 3,400-page documents that they found. The only thing that's there is a copy of the sketching of the boy who is considered to be Mark Stebbins and the death certificate that deems it a suicide. Wow. That's it. Bush is not the only killing slash questionable suicide of the known associates of Cass Corridor. There's many others. So just to name a few... John McKinney, who was a known associate of all the men we mentioned above, Lawson, Sloan, Lamborghini, and more, he was found murdered in his art gallery, and there was no motive. Um, I did see a newspaper article on this. They did mention the fact that he was associated with Cass Corridor, pedophile ring, maybe somebody, he did something wrong, and someone was trying to get back at him, or they were also saying maybe this is a the father of a possible victim seeking revenge for what happened to, to their child.
0: I could believe that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I can 100% believe that. Other names associated with suicides from the cast Corridor group are Todd Warcheza, R. Horjnicki, L. Bo Johnson, and the final one is Alan McCoy.
0: Wow. And that goes back to that letter that you were referring to the
1: Allen letter. The
0: Allen letter, yeah.
1: Maybe Alan Maybe is, he's the
0: one that had remorse. Maybe
1: this is the one who felt remorse, sent the letters, he committed suicide. Questionable suicide. Is that why we never heard from Alan again? Because he committed suicide or that he was murdered? Yeah. And it brings up a lot of questions. Okay, so before we get into other theories or talk further about the ones that we had kind of navigated through... Let's discuss the Blue Gremlin, because the Blue Gremlin is notoriously associated with the Oakland County child killings. Most investigators no longer believe that the killer was in possession of the Blue Gremlin with the white stripe on its side. Evidence that it was not a Blue Gremlin involved with the abductions, but investigators now believe that it was a Pontiac Le Mans. Is that how you say it? Le Mans?
0: Le Mans. And it's a much nicer
1: car. Yes. Chris King claims when he went to look for his brother, he saw the gremlin in the parking lot too, but this is later on at 11 o'clock, which means it couldn't have been the vehicle Timothy was taken in because it was still in the parking lot. So yes, the witness probably saw a blue gremlin, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was the vehicle of the abductors because it was still in the lot at 11 p.m. Eyewitnesses also saw a blue Pontiac Le Mans Parked along I seventy five hours before Jill Robinson's body was found. The witness said there was damage to the vehicle's rear, and he was confident that this was the car because he owns one himself. There were also bumper markers at the site where Christine was found, Christine Mellick was found, and it proved to be that of a Pontiac Le Mans, so like backed up into a snowbank. Right. It was the bumper print of a Pontiac Le Mans.
0: Plus all those cars have like these, you know, steel bumpers, so they'll leave a really good impression. Right. Other than you know, like compared to like today's plastic bumpers.
1: The Le Mans can also be connected to the disappearance again with Timothy King as well. Witness Doug Wilson also said he saw King at the drugstore the night of his disappearance. He said the boy was talking to a man in his late twenties. He said that he also saw an older man around fifty-five or sixty-five years old with gray hair. The man looked to be about 30 pounds overweight. So what's interesting at the time is that people are going to question who the second man is. And when you're talking about a child abduction, rape and murder, and you're talking about an overweight man with gray hair, 55 to 65, they're going to think John Wayne Gacy. And that's how John Wayne Gacy becomes associated with the Oakland County child killings. However, in 2013, they're going to do DNA testing, and they're going to completely rule out Gacy. The reason why they thought Gacy was involved was because he was in Michigan at the time of the abductions, but he's completely ruled out, so it's not Gacy. When you take a look at the sketching, people claim that it looks like a young Richard Lawson. The 20-year-old. And maybe the overweight person was Chris Bush.
0: Right. And they just got the age wrong. Right. And compared, you know, side by side, I could see why, you know, that one would be like 30 pounds overweight.
1: Right. Because Bush is going to be a little bit overweight. Retired Birmingham police officer Jack Calflish, who's 84 years old, recalls the search for the Gremlin. It sounded good, so we gave it a shot. If we were looking for the wrong car, we may have missed the boat. Now, this retired police officer, he is going to be constantly through the case evidence to prove that the Pontiac Le Mans was actually at the site of all abductions. And he has been constantly sending letters to the FBI telling them that this is a lead that they need to start investigating in the case. But if we're going to say that the Blue Gremlin wasn't involved in the abductions, can we believe anything about the Allen letter? Good point. Because remember, Alan says that Frank drove a blue gremlin. True. So it kind of questions, puts a whole letter into, you know, questionable outlook. So I want to return to the King family and their journey that they're going through. The King family has been battling to solve this case since the disappearance of their son and brother. Upon receiving the documents from the police files, the family produced a documentary entitled Decades of Deceit. This documentary condemns the investigators and prosecutors for alleged shoddy investigation and uncooperative communication and in particular disregarding leads the King family discovered in 2006. An example of this would be the fact the police told the King family that Bush was no longer a suspect but refused to tell them why. The funds generated from the sale of the documentary were donated to the Tim King Fund designed to help abuse children and support child activities for Birmingham children. The King family is in constant communication with the other families and they are getting through this decade-long battle together. The families call their search for the killer or killers a cycle of hope and heartbreak. It seems that the King family, along with Erica Ashcroft McAvoy, who is the sister of Christine, believe that Chris Bush is responsible for the crimes. But with the help of a network of associates. King, a retired attorney, said that he initially believed one diabolical person was behind the killings, but now suspects it's possible the children had been abducted in a suspected pedophile ring. King states, there was a major pedophile ring out here and Wayne County investigated it. They knew boys were being taken. Somebody was paying a lot of money for that and the guys paying a lot of money are not the ones picking up the boys. So he's referring to the fact that Bush, Lawson, Lamborghini, Sloan, these are the type of low lives that are picking up the boys. Right. And not saying they're not doing horrible things to these boys as well, but they're providing these boys to men who are paying a lot of money. And when you look at, um, for example, Sheldon, Francis Sheldon, look at everything that he got away with. He was running a pedophilia ring, an extreme ring where hundreds and hundreds of boys were being victimized, and he got away with it.
0: He was also involved with the Boys and Girls Club, right?
1: Right. And he was on the board of a lot of different child organizations. So I think this is what the King family is alluding to, is the fact that we're talking about men who are very rich, very influential, and... I think a lot of people didn't want to believe that of Sheldon. I mean, even that article that I read to you about the deer hunting and how they said it was so great that Sheldon was had bought the island and was showing the beauty and allowing people to go deer hunting. The person who wrote that article is going to come out and he's going to be furious with the fact that Sheldon was able to get one over on him. And now this beautiful island that shows... You know, how amazing Michigan can be It's going to be forever tainted with this disgusting man. Right. So the King family is saying that there's a lot more players in this than we think. And I know it sounds like a stretch, but is it really? When you look at the North Fox Island Pedophile Ring, it's not a stretch. Maybe there was more. They've already uncovered Cass Corridor, North Fox there's Island. There's way more. There's, there's more. There's
0: way more, and they're all connected
1: Other family members of the victims have come out and spoke about the crime. Erica Ashcroft McAvoy said, I think there is a mountain of evidence that, in fact, they will never divulge to us, even as family members. Mike Stebbins, older brother of Mark, states, Not a day goes by that I don't think about this. Now, on the other side of this argument is the police, who currently have taken on a case where the investigation has been questionable to begin with. Nine jurisdictions were fighting over solving the case. So when we talk about the collection of evidence, it was never done properly. In fact, I'm surprised they salvaged any DNA evidence. Because if you go back and you remember what happened, the clothes were stripped off of Mark Stebbins before they even were able to take DNA evidence. So I'm surprised they even found the hairs or the hair that was connected to Sloan's car. I mean, they could have found so much more.
0: Lots of things were botched, for sure.
1: Now, a 300-person strong task force that was completely underfunded was unfocused. So, yeah, you had a lot of people working, but they were spread out so thin. Looking Look how many people were directed only to look for a blue gremlin, which isn't even associated with the case. Right. So, they were very undirected. And that's going to lead to an unorganized amount of case files that people are going to have to sift through. And now you're giving this to the Michigan State Police, who do have a number of cases that are still open and aren't cold cases. So how much resources can they direct to the Oakland County child killing? Then it's sad, but it's a reality. So now that we've covered all of the different suspects, all the different players, what has been proven, what has been disproven... Um, There's a lot of theories that are out there. The most commonly accepted theory is going to be the fact that the children were victims of a pedophilia ring. Whether it was through Cass Corridor, through North Fox Island, or a combination of the two. So that's the main theory that I think is going on. I think all the DNA evidence points to that. Like the only concrete evidence that we have in this case points towards the pedophilia ring.
0: I agree. I actually agree with that theory. It's, it's probably, it's the base of everything. You know, like you can build a really good case just on that right there.
1: Right. And there's so many different scenarios within that theory. Whereas the dumping and the cleaning of the bodies was done so by either A, someone who was remorseful. Maybe one of the recruiters who didn't want to be involved in it, like Gunnels, for example. Or you could talk about them just doing that because they want to take as much evidence off of the children as possible. It may not be an emotional thing. It may be a strictly DNA thing.
0: Right. I mean, it's also, remember this, if there are people higher up that are paying for these boys,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, they're probably being told, oh, don't worry, we're going to handle everything. So you're not, it's, you're, you're not, this isn't going to come back to bite you. Don't worry. And that's why you have these washing of the kids and everything right. like that.
1: So the kids are washed completely. And that's why the DNA of those people, the high-paying people, aren't on it. But then that's why the DNA of the people that are low on the totem pole, like Bush and like Sloan and like Gunnels, are there. Because they're the people that dispose of the bodies for these men. Right. That could be it. Absolutely. Now, we are kind of focusing on, and I apologize if it seems this way, but the boys... Remember, the girls were involved too, and I think that's an interesting aspect of the case to look at. The boys were sexually assaulted and the females were not. So, why did this happen? I think that we could look at many different scenarios here. Maybe the girls were used as recruiters themselves.
0: I could see that happening. I could see that happening. Also, that could be why... um... One of the girl victims was alive for 19... I mean, she was kept
1: right, maybe, missing for 19 Maybe days. Christine Mellick was playing the game, and she was trying to stay alive as long as possible. And maybe she died as a result of trying to get away.
0: Also, you can say, you know, I mean... You know, the boys were sexually assaulted. Maybe the girls weren't sexually assaulted... But But they were used for video and pictures. Right, right. And stuff, you know, things like that.
1: It may even be, if we're talking about who's going to the highest bidder, these girls might have been held. And then maybe the people that were paying for children weren't interested in girls.
0: And that's why they... They were just
1: held and then... Killed. Killed after a certain amount of time when they couldn't be used as recruiters anymore.
0: Right, right.
1: I mean, we don't know. There's never an answer, but it seems like the pedophile ring working out of Cass Corridor and working out of North Fox Island seemed to have a proclivity towards towards boys. Oh, absolutely. And maybe they just took children that... Maybe it was... It's probably just a crime of opportunity where they saw Jill Robinson and they saw Christine Melick and they just took them... Because they could. And then they decided, okay, they're not of use to us.
0: Could have been a mistake.
1: Right, it could. Well, some people do say that maybe it was a mistaken identity and they thought that the girls were boys. However, when you look at pictures, and you look at how they were dressed, and you looked at the length of their hair, I really don't think that that is what took place. But it's definitely evident that they weren't sexually assaulted, but they were kept. We don't know what happened to them. So right. we can't even assume. We don't know what really happened. Or or
0: the other thing that could, it really could be is that maybe they were all um, sexually Blested molested. in some way. Right. And that we just... wasn't
1: evident through an autopsy. Exactly. Right. I mean,
0: they did I botch know. a lot of evidence.
1: Now, um, some other theories that are touched upon are the fact that maybe this is just one person. But that is... Every, the, every piece of DNA evidence that we have with this case goes against the theory that just one person is involved. Yeah. Then another interesting theory is the fact that maybe this is a work of a male and female couple.
0: Huh. I mean, I could see that one, too. Because made- you can see how maybe, like, they're both doing this. Like, the couple, both of them are... are, are are kidnapping these kids. That maybe
1: she is responsible for helping him lure the children.
0: Also, yeah, and and the woman maybe in the couple is the remorseful one who's t- trying to take care of them, possibly.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I...
0: I could see that happening. And I there's can been see cases that being like a that plausible before.
1: theory, yes.
0: Yeah, we've seen that before in yeah. other cases. But anyway, I, I do think that...
1: I think the most likely scenario is the pedophile ring.
0: I think it's the pedophile ring. But I mean, I, with, with something like this with such a... You know, with these these upper class kids, anything's possible.
1: Anything is possible. I just feel like the fact that hairs were found in Sloane's car, the fact that Lamborghini is going to say this looks like King, the dog hairs from from Bush, the hairs on Gunnel's, it just seems like more than one person was involved in the taking of these children.
0: Well, regardless of what, how, or you know, what theory and how it actually took place. My heart really goes out to the families of these four children. I mean, what happened to them was so brutal and just ter- terrible.
1: Right. It's it's absolutely disgusting and the families are never going to forget what happened. And all all of four of these families are fighting to find answers. And Barry King has started a blog as well as a Facebook page. I know he has a Twitter page going as well regarding all the information that he's compiled on this case and the blog is called a father's story and it tells the devastating story of his family and three other families that have been victimized by the Oakland County child killer on his blog he urges anyone with information to come forward he breaks down he breaks the page down into various chapters covering all of the evidence and events that have taken place since 1976 i'm going to leave a link to his blog, to his Facebook page, and to his Twitter on our website so you can have access to that. Fortunately, Timothy's mother passed away in 2004. And I'm going to leave you with a quote from Barry King himself. I don't want the case to be solved by conjecture and hearsay and coincidence and suspicion. I want to know the facts. I would like some questions answered for me and I don't have much time left. Okay, guys, thank you for coming out and listening to episode five with us. We appreciate you listening. We love all the feedback that we're getting. So please reach out to us. Tell us what you think about this episode, any questions that you have, any theories that you may have, what you agree with, what you don't agree with. You can reach out to us on Twitter, on Instagram. You could go to our website, truecrimecouple.com. We'd also appreciate you going to iTunes, maybe leaving us some reviews, tell us what you think. We've gotten a lot of great feedback. And if you want to, if you're feeling generous, if you want to help us make this show better for you, better quality, then you can visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash couple, and it would be greatly appreciated. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you so much.